Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast. This episode recorded on location in Canada at Olds College of Agriculture and Technology and on farm in the Western Prairie province of Alberta. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. And I'm Owen Roberts. In this episode, we get the lowdown on prairie agriculture from Canadian cereals to Alberta beef and everything in between. We'll find out how craft brewing is helping to secure a future for family farms. And we meet the canola grower who's been fighting wildfires with his helicopter. The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. But first, something a bit different this week. A whole episode of the Farmer's Weekly Podcast about farming in one of the world's foremost food producing nations. We're in Canada, in the Western Prairie province of Alberta, with a very special guest, Canadian agricultural journalist Owen Roberts. More about Owen later on as he explains what's hot and what's not in Canadian agriculture throughout this episode. But as a scene setter, to get us going and to introduce us to farming here in Alberta, I caught up with Canadian politician Nathan Cooper. Nathan's a member of Alberta's Legislative Assembly, similar, if you will, to the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh or the Welsh Assembly in Cardiff. As a member of the Legislative Assembly, or MLA, Nathan represents the district of Old Didsbury Three Hills, where we are now, a district of Alberta where agriculture is by far the major employer. And I started by asking him about the importance of farming to the province of Alberta. We are known all around the world for our oil and gas. It is the the number one thing that drives our economy. But a close second is our agriculture industry. And there is an incredible amount of opportunity right now and all across our province as the world becomes more focused on food security, on the need to do more with less, we really lead Canada in this area, particularly around ag tech, and smart agriculture. And so we have some really great institutions here in the province, uh, but uh, we employ uh, thousands and thousands of people all across the province as well through the industry and the industry uh, that supports our farmers and ranchers. We only are a population of about 4 million people. And so we do supply not just Canada, but around the world with many of our products. Very, very famous beef industry here. Uh, They've done an incredible job of marketing it. I love Alberta beef, um, which isn't just a personal statement, but also a brand statement. Uh, And so we have, and and the Alberta beef industry has done an incredible job uh, of positioning our product around the world as one of incredible quality, but also we have a, a, a lot of opportunity here for value added. At present, we actually ship incredible amounts of uh, raw product, canola or lentils, all around the world to be processed. Uh, and in fact, then they, they often end up back here uh, amongst their other jurisdictions. And so Alberta is really aggressive right now about uh, increasing investment in the egg industry. And so I think we're going to see lots of changes within the industry here at home. But I also think that's going to have a spin-off impact all around the world. And I think, 
you know, more broadly, there is lots of excitement inside the agriculture industry here at home, but also around the world. I had the opportunity of being in in both Britain and Scotland uh, last year and had the opportunity to see some farming operations. And I think if people were to come and visit here, they would be surprised by the scale of our operations in that we, we have much larger operations here. And I was surprised um, when I was there about just how small uh, a farmer can operate on and still also be able to feed their family and, and make it economically viable. I mean, you're entirely right. I mean, we measure distance in miles in the UK, but here you measure distance in in, in hours uh, in terms of how far <laughs> away something is. And, and the scale of the farming, this is big agriculture. Absolutely it is. I mean, it, even if you were to think about the scale of the province of Alberta, my polit- local politician next to me, he represents a constituency called Sundry Rimby Rocky Mountain House. And his the area that he personally represents is the same size as the country of Belgium. You know, from one area of the, the area that I represent to the other side is 215 kilometers, like maybe 160 miles or something close to that rough calculation, where it takes me two full hours to drive across. And 95% of all of that space of the 10,000 square kilometers that I represent will be arable land that will be farmed in some capacity, whether it's ranched, whether they have a grain operation or, you know, lots of mixed farmers around here who will run some cattle and also uh, also have some sort of other farming operation. So we definitely do things a bit bigger here. And, you know, just from the sheer land mask that we have available and, and, and that affects everything from equipment size to cost of equipment. Uh, and so it really is different. But at the heart of it, uh, is the same. You know, a farmer in the UK is, is similar to a farmer here where they have that deep connection to the land, they have that deep connection to the lifestyle that farming provides them, and that real intrinsic community desire of being able to help their neighbor, feed their neighbor, and really add to the social fabric of our communities. And looking more widely outside of the rural communities, especially in here in Alberta, what are the challenges that farmers face in terms of understanding from the urban masses to how their food is is produced? You know, I think that there's a couple of really big challenges that the industry faces right now. One of them is, you know, people don't really get where their food comes from. And often we see lots of negative media attention on a very small group of individuals who perhaps don't have the best farming practices. And so, you know, folks in the city assume that all farmers do that. But you know, farmers are really the original uh, environmentalists where they understood that if I took care of my animals, if I took care of my land, then in turn, those things would take care of me. And so we need to do a, a much better job of getting that message out to our city friends. And conversely, we also need to help folks change their perspective on on what a farmer actually is. Farmers are business people, they're entrepreneurs, they're risk takers, they're investors. You know, all too often, I think people think of a farmer who's sitting on an open cab tractor with a piece of straw hanging out of their mouth and and an old worn down hat, when in fact, 
most farmers, particularly, and I'm in my early 40s, any farmer that farms around here of similar age is basically running a high-tech business. And so the face of agriculture is changing, and I think that we need to do a really good job of getting that message out, uh, as well as working to attract talent. You know, we have a massive challenge here with labor force issues, aging farmers, less farmers to go around. We need to communicate that this industry is available to those in our urban centers uh, for them to come out, experience it, and make, make a living, make a lifestyle out of it as well. That's Nathan Cooper on agriculture in Alberta. And as you've already heard from his accent, we're joined by a different podcast co-host this week, special guest Canadian agricultural journalist Owen Roberts, who's with me now. Owen, probably a little bit unfair to call you a veteran journalist, but you've been reporting on farming in Canada for a long time. Yeah, I, I, think, I think veteran in the kindest sense is a good way to describe me. It's been, uh, it's been most of my career writing about agricultural issues in Canada and teaching about them, teaching others how to write. And how important is agriculture to Canada as a country? Well, Canada doesn't have very many people. We just passed the 40 million mark sounds like a lot of people, but given the size of Canada, it isn't. So we produce a lot of food. Exports are very significant. Agriculture is very significant. And it's big agriculture, isn't it? I mean, compared to what we see in the UK, when I flew into Calgary over the prairies, the scale of the landscape was just huge. And just to throw a statistic out there, one thing that I've learned since I've been here is that New Brunswick on the east coast of Canada is actually closer to Scotland, to Aberdeen in Scotland, than it is to Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. So a huge, huge country. Well, the prairie farms are humongous, spread out, incredible acreage. I suppose like any country, there are regions in Canada that are are very different as far as scale goes. And the scale on the prairies is much different than it is in other parts of Canada, but so productive. The prairies are so productive. Long, long days, cool nights, which are ideal for growing grain, so there is no, there's less disease pressure that you would associate with a, a humid climate. It's dry in the prairies and very productive. We're going to look at some of the uh, challenges and the opportunities and the successes of Canadian agriculture throughout this podcast. But I was struck by one of the things that uh, Nathan Cooper in the audio was saying about the, the gap that there is between rural communities, farming communities and urban communities in terms of city folk often don't understand how their food is produced. And that's a, that's a challenge that we have in the UK too. What are Canadian farmers doing to try and bridge that gap? They're probably not doing enough, to be honest with you. Uh, There's an opportunity, I believe, right now to bridge that gap if Canadian farmers or farmers anywhere are more assertive and take a bigger role in communications themselves. Because now, just like with this podcast, we have the social media tools for individuals to be able to do this, to be able to communicate in ways they never have before. And this is key to me. Overall, then, a good story to tell for Canadian farming. We need to tell it. We absolutely need to tell it all over the world because people want and need to hear them. 
Are you looking to earn more for your exported power? FNS Energy are an independent, renewable electricity supplier. Our unique peer-to-peer scheme matches you with a consumer directly. This allows consumers to know exactly where their power is coming from and have confidence in the knowledge that they are truly being supplied from a renewable source. If you have a wind, solar, AD or hydro generator that's exporting to the grid, you could be missing out on earning more. Don't delay. Call FNS Energy for a quote today on 01245 690 151 and speak to our friendly team. FNS Energy. Earn more for your exported power. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, barley is a key crop here in Alberta, but as with all commodities, prices can be volatile. To try to put some certainty into the prices they receive, some growers are adding value to the crop, turning barley from a commodity into something special. We caught up with the Hamill family, who farm in Red Deer County, Alberta. John Hamill grows high-quality spring barley, and son Matthew turns it into malt. Uh, My name is John Hamill, and I'm from uh, Red Deer County, Alberta, Canada. Our farm started in uh, 1929 here, so that's probably about as long as we've been growing barley on our farm. An important crop, uh, you choose to grow malting barley, you're not going for feed, you're going for quality over quantity. Yeah, definitely we're going to try to grow malting barley all the time. In the past we've tried feed barleys, but we find that we can always get pretty much the same yield on our malt barleys, just takes a little bit more management. And uh, tell me about the, uh, the growing process. Okay, so usually we get out in the spring and uh, we'll try to get our barley crop in as early as possible. So this year we were fortunate we could get going early. We got it in uh, first week of May. And after we get that crop in, then we're scouting it for weeds and uh, we'll probably do a herbicide application uh, probably around uh, early June. And then after we do that, we'll keep scouting that field, make sure that our herbicides worked well. And then we're also scouting for uh, leaf diseases. And uh, this year, the crop's a little bit ahead, so we have been starting to apply some uh, fungicides already for some leaf diseases. So that happened uh, end of June. And once we get those fungicides on, we'll keep monitoring the crop just to see the maturity. And uh, now we're kind of waiting for harvest and uh, we'll start to harvest that uh, hopefully around the way it looks, probably about August 20th or sometime after that this year. And what sort of yields do you get? Some of our better yields have been around that 120 bushels per acre if everything goes really well. And on a poorer year, we might only get 80, but uh, we like to average about 100 bushels an acre. And like a lot of things in farming, I guess it's about striking a balance between the agronomic qualities of, of what you're growing. You want to solve your problems, you want to minimise the risk and uh, mm-hmm. uh, minimise the, the pests and diseases. But at the same time, you've got to have your eye on the end market, the end user, what the maltster want, what ultimately the consumer wants. How do you, how do you strike that balance? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question because we do have to look after um, the agronomics of it first. It's got to be profitable for us. But now that we have our own malting business, it's very important for us to be able to uh, develop a product that malts well in our malt house and that the brewers want. So it's a combination and, and the whole malt industry struggles with this. You know, we all want more agronomic uh, benefits, but we always have to get those agronomic benefits while at the same time maintaining or improving the quality for malting and brewing. 
Let's go and have a look at this malting business. Okay. We'll go over there now. Thank okay. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Matthew Hamill from Redshed Malting, just outside of Red Deer, Alberta. So initially we looked at starting a brewery, but then once we toured a few of the breweries and toured a malt house uh, and talked to some people, we, we saw a better opportunity in malting. Um, there wasn't really good options for Canadian craft malt. Uh, and so we really focused on specialty malts, specialty malts being the malts that add color, aroma, and flavor to beers. These malts are not only specific to Alberta, specific to your farm. Yeah, yeah. So we, we really try to make a, a personalized product or something that is uh, unique and um, uh, special for sure. So we're, we're looking at uh, barley varieties that are being used a little bit less than uh, elsewhere in the industry. Um, we feel that our uh, climate and our soil gives us a unique terroir. And then with uh, the equipment that we have, we can tweak the processing a little bit to really try to achieve some different flavors as well. So we, we, there's definitely some levers that we can pull to make some unique products. Trying to grow the, the farm to the size that it would support three families uh, would have been a monumental task trying to acquire that sort of farmland in this area. And, and starting a malt house was certainly not... Uh, uh, a small task, but it was something that got everyone in the family excited, brought us back to the farm, and, and allowed us to, to build something that uh, can be the future for multiple, multiple families. That's Maltster Matt Hamill from Redshed Malting, adding value and securing a future for the family farm by turning homegrown barley into malt. A great family business, Owen, and it seems to be working well. One thing that struck me, though, was the, was, was the drilling dates and the harvest dates for that barley crop. I mean, drilled in May, harvested not till mid to late uh, August. Completely different to the way it would be in the UK. In Alberta, to a significant extent, you're absolutely right. I think it really does show the value, though, of research because varieties have been developed that are cold tolerant or what you're calling short season. Canada has invested a fair bit into research, like the federal government, because it's too small of a population, a farm population, for industry to sink a lot of money in. So the federal government has been quite forthcoming with research money for crop development. Uh, I think a key here is to recognize, though, that these, these long, long days that uh, because we're so far north these long days that we have in uh, in this part of Canada are crucial and really uh, really instrumental in helping a crop develop so a short growing season but with longer days which mean crops still get plenty of sunshine that's right and you know it's called sunny Alberta for a reason there is lots of sunshine lots of long days lots of wonderful vistas uh, with crops developing you can imagine you know the classic photo or the classic uh, video of the crops waving in the breeze it's wonderful land is difficult to get hold of for farmers across the world it's uh, it costs a lot of money it's a big investment and uh, for the Hamel family, Hamill Farms, they're securing a future for their farming business. They've started this this red shed malting business. It's one way of ensuring that that farm can support three farming families. I guess succession is a challenge. It's a big challenge and it's something that has become more formalized significantly as time has gone on and top marks to them for thinking down the road about this. And they've seized an opportunity by having their own malt house to bring along succession. In my own family, my my daughter and son-in-law are farmers 
facing the same thing. Two families, two and a half, trying to live off one farm in which one family has traditionally lived off. So big challenges there have to be creative and uh, they're finding they're finding ways to diversify, to pick up new crops, in their case, uh, livestock. So they're raising hogs as a, an additional way to make some income. And more farmers are doing this. It's not just the craft brewing sector, but there are other opportunities, as you've just explained as well. Well, Canada has a very aggressive immigration policy. So there are lots of new Canadians who have different dietary interests than traditional Canadians. So there's an opportunity right there to grow some specialty crops. You can find some type of crop that can be lucrative for farmers. And these new Canadians are staying. They're not, they're not leaving. So that can be a, a, a long-term opportunity to find a way to diversify and therefore to help make sure there's enough income so succession can succeed. Your one-stop shop for a successful grass harvest has arrived. If you want the best return on investment and the best quality output, you need equipment you can trust. Renowned for its unique features and engineering from Massey Ferguson. Choose from our large range of grass equipment and round balers with 0% finance available. Speak to your local MF dealer today or visit masseyferguson.co.uk for more details. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now we're here in Canada paying a special farming visit to Alberta together with almost 200 agricultural journalists from around the world. It's part of the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists Annual Congress. This year centred on Olds College of Agriculture and Technology here in the Alberta prairie town of Olds. Owen Roberts, you're one of those agricultural journalists. You've been with me for a number of days now. We've been on a lot of farm tours from Alberta beef to barley and canola, better known in the UK as oilseed rape. What's been the most memorable tour for you? One of the most memorable ones has been, ironically, right here at the college. There's been great tours that are going out into the field to see various things, beef, canola, technology. But here... At Olds College, they have developed, and it's the five-year anniversary right now of this, it's called the Smart Farm. And the college being a teaching college, they're teaching students about precision agriculture, is what it boils down to. Doing some research, which is not usual for a college in Canada as it is a university. But this college is very progressively minded when it comes to research, when it comes to looking at the needs of farmers. We know that precision agriculture is growing, and the folks here at Olds College are right on top of it. And when you say precision agriculture, what are they doing? They're doing autonomous vehicles, absolutely a leader in that area, and they've got some good contacts with industry to test out autonomous vehicles here. Release of carbon which is certainly a controversial and much-needed area for some more research. They're, they're doing that. Uh, we've seen them doing some runoff research, again, because Canada's very interested in maintaining that clean image. So we want to make sure, and this is related to beef cattle as well, in some of the feedlots, if you're going to have a, develop a feedlot now, you have to have a runoff basin that can be treated, the water can be treated, so that's uh, some of the research they're doing as well. We hear some of the uh, the wildlife in the background there. Uh, in terms of um, autonomous vehicles, I mean, the, the, this, this prairie landscape that we're in, these vast flat square 
fields or oblong fields, it's not unusual to see a field that might be a mile or more long, which lends itself perfectly to autonomous farming. Perfectly. A lot of the land here is straight and flat and would be ideal for an autonomous vehicle. And uh, here in Olds, uh, even though we're approaching the foothills of of, uh, the Rocky Mountains, there's still a lot of flat land. This is a great place for an agricultural college. So Olds College, just for listeners, was founded in 1913. It's one of the premier agricultural colleges in Canada, has a proud history, and is also working to secure a future. Absolutely. It is It is a Canadian leader. I know I come from Ontario, which is a four-hour plane ride away. Not a four-hour drive, but a four-hour plane ride. And there are students from Ontario who come to Alberta specifically to attend Olds College who want to give, get involved uh, traditionally in the uh, mechanical uh, program that they have here, farm machinery program. It's, uh, it's renowned. I mean, it's an impressive facility, isn't it? And I'm not surprised you're singing its praises. In terms of your own career, you started out in journalism and you're now working in academia yourself. I started out as a general assignment reporter, like, like many other reporters. And one day uh, at the magazine I worked at, the um, editor came in, the main editor came in and said, uh, we need somebody to write about agriculture. Who wants to do it? And I didn't put my hand up and neither did anyone else. But because I still wanted to cover rock stars and chase ambulances and do all those other kinds of exciting things. But the, uh, the editor said, how about you? You're from a rural area. How about you? And it wasn't really a request. It was more like, you know, you should do this. So I did, and I found out how exciting it really was, how diversified it was, what a great business opportunity it was to write about. And then from there, I just, uh, I drank the Kool-Aid. I just think it's a great opportunity for a journalist to write stories that are always, always exciting. And you're now a full-time faculty member at the University of Illinois, teaching youngsters about uh, agricultural journalism, about the importance of telling the story of farming. That's right. And now I have a a class of uh, students who are committed to agricultural communications and journalism, bridging that gap between those who create knowledge and those who can use it. And knowledge we know is key, especially when it comes to successful farming. Much of Alberta's farming success is, of course, based on beef, thanks to more than 18,000 beef producers in the province. Oh, and this really is cattle country, isn't it? It's absolutely cattle country. The conditions are perfect for producing cattle. The grazing conditions are ideal. There's lots of grass. Not much else can be done with it other than grazing livestock. But in doing so, the livestock is doing all those great things like sequestering carbon and helping keep the natural state of the prairie as it was in the first place. Yes, new land is being developed for, for grazing, but for the most part, this land is just perfect, just ideal for cattle production. And when UK listeners think of uh, cattle production in the Americas, North America or South America, often they think of feedlots. Yes, there are feedlots here, but there is also a mix of farm sizes. There are also family ranches here too. Yeah, very much so. You know, Canada is not a really old country. It's still a fairly new country, even though we're in our 156th year now, I guess. Uh, It's still a relatively new country that was uh, opened up for agriculture by families. 
many immigrant families. And th as a result, those family farms, even though they're, you know, a hundred and some hundred years old, they're still family farms. They've grown in size. They may have incorporated, but they're still run by families. Owen Roberts, thank you. And we're going to visit another one of those family farms right now. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, a series of wildfires has devastated swathes of northern Alberta this year. Tinder dry conditions and lightning strikes have seen fires destroy homes and businesses, as well as crops and farmland. Earlier, I caught up with Alberta farmer and firefighter Wade McAllister, who's been flying helicopters and fighting the fires. I've been a pilot now for uh, 19 years. I got my license when I, when I just turned uh, 19. Um, and yeah, uh, the fires in Canada uh, this year have been really bad. I mean, the worst we've seen in probably 35 years. And that's just due to no rain this spring and, uh, and not a lot of snow. So when that uh, snow melted, the, uh, the grass was really brown. And then we didn't get those spring rains that we usually get. And so any lightning strikes that were happening, they were just lighting everything up, right? So now that we're seeing all the grass and stuff green up, we are getting some rain, but now that the grass is starting to green up, uh, when we are getting those lightning strikes, they're still lighting, but they're not spreading. So we can control them faster. So that's what I do is I fly around a team of four guys. We're initial attack. So when the towers call out a smoke, we go and land, assess the situation right away, and then we'll start hammering it off fast and just and put it out. And these are little fires, like we're talking like half a hectare. So we can hit it and we can get it out right away. Whereas in the spring, when they were lighting, when they were hit, the lightning was hitting, they were exploding and you couldn't put them out. So you're almost like a first responder then? 100%, we're a first responder. So that's what initial attack is. So uh, yeah, so I got my Bambi bucket, uh, which is the water bucket that hangs underneath the helicopter. Got four man crew and uh, all their gear. So I'll land them as close as we can to the lightning strike or whatever the, the fire cause may have been and uh, and just and hit it really hard and really quick. What sort of volume of water then are we talking about in that bucket? Yeah, so not it's not a big machine because, uh, I mean, but 180 gallons. So, I mean, when you're, when you're looking at a fire that size, it's just, it's maybe just one tree smoldering from a lightning strike. It's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to get out with 180 gallons and water sources are close. So our turner, like we, we can hammer off, uh, uh, 50 to 60 bucket drops in a fuel cycle. So that's a lot. I mean, if you add it up, that's a lot, um, big, big fires. It's not an ideal helicopter to fight big fires. I mean, really the water bombers, like the fixed wing, the planes are what, what do that. But for that initial attack stuff, it's perfect. It's going to be one thing, flying a helicopter is challenging enough, but yeah. to do it, uh, to be picking up water, dropping it, putting out fires, yeah. and the lightning going on at the same yeah. time, that must yeah. be pretty handy. It is, for sure. So we do have to land when the lightning is happening, right? I mean, we're not, or you're not supposed to fly within five nautical miles of a lightning storm. So we do usually shut down uh, when the lightning is going, but uh, otherwise, yeah, it, uh, it's challenging, but uh, it's a lot of fun, and, and uh, I enjoy it. Now, the, uh, the helicopter also has a use on the farm. It's yeah. not just uh, something that you do to fight fires. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, and over the last couple of years, since I've been flying for so long, in the last couple of years, we've been really thinking about getting a machine uh, for the farm. Um, it's not a big, it's not a big machine. It's not an expensive machine. I mean, we have farm equipment that are worth more than this helicopter that we got here. But yeah, so um, it's for, I mean, our, our end goal is to crop spray with it. So we do have a big high clearance sprayer that works great, but we do get wet years here and uh, we're making ruts in the field and that is causing us to go back and fix those ruts and till the land. And, and I don't really, we don't like doing it. 
And also we're losing roughly two to 3% crop loss from driving the tires through the crop and damaging that crop when we're doing fungicides. So our goal is to start spraying all of our fungicides over 3,700 acres every year. So that could be anywhere from 40 to $60,000 a year that we could potentially be saving by not driving through with the ground units. So um, yeah, I don't know if it'll be this winter that we'll get it rigged up. There's still uh, there's still lots of things to do. Like we got to rig up a landing trailer. Um, we got to rig up the boom kit. We got to put the GPS system in it. Like there's still lots to do, but the machine is home now and in the yard and we do use it uh, weekly for checking crops. I mean, we can check our whole farm uh, within an 18 mile radius in an hour. And those numbers stuck up when spraying too. Yes, for sure. So we're not using less chemical, but we're using less water. So on a ground unit, you need the water volume to penetrate into the crop, whereas by air, you're using the speed of the machine and the downwash to get the product in the crop. So we're going from 12 and a half gallons with a ground unit to three gallons an acre with a helicopter. It's quicker, for sure. Like we're, we're, we're spraying quicker. We're doing probably, I would say, almost twice as fast as a ground unit, and you're not driving through the field. So it really works then. Less liquid, it's a quicker job. It is a quicker job. And I think uh, if we were, uh, we've never paid to have stuff ground applied unless it's really, really wet. But now that I, I mean, I own one, I fly it, it it just makes sense, right? I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I can fly. I mean, a lot of farms, I mean, they don't have a helicopter pilot on staff. So uh, that's what makes it easier. What got you into helicopter piloting in the yeah, first place? So I, I came out of school as a, uh, as a steam fitter, pipe fitter, tradesman. And then I hurt my back uh, in an accident, uh, snowmobiling, uh, when I was younger. So um, that kind of, that career, I just, I didn't think it was going to work out for me, um, just just with the injury. So I went for a helicopter ride. It, my mom bought my dad a helicopter ride for his birthday, and I was hooked. The pilot was young. I asked a ton of questions. Two months later, I was in a flight school, I was training, and that next summer I was flying tours. That well, fast. <laughs> let's hope it works out then with the crop spraying. It certainly makes it more fun, I guess. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's nothing better. And I mean, I love farming. It's in my blood, a fifth generation farmer here with my brother. And uh, to be able to do both, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything better. And, and they, they sure like going up for rides whenever they can. So, yeah. That's Alberta farmer and firefighter Wade McAllister. So, Owen, these Alberta fires, absolutely devastating. Absolutely. The worst year ever, on record, anyway. Who knows how far back before records, but absolutely awful, uh, devastating to humans and animals. Unfortunately, just the way it is sometimes. Is it climate change? Who knows? But fires are a part of the Canadian summer. It just happens because we're such a big country and there are so many opportunities for these fires to catch. Devastating for those involved. Livelihoods, farm businesses, crops and equipment gone. That must be hard to deal with. Absolutely, yes. And we always read about or hear about or see uh, evidence of these fires, but not to the same extent that they would compromise air quality. The idea that some Canadian cities had some of the worst air quality in the world really does raise some alarm bells and again it's the image of what this looks like it looks like alberta is burning which is understandable when you look at some of the video footage of these fires it's it's on a scale that is so awesome it's hard to comprehend how it wouldn't continue to spread south but it hasn't 
And some of that has been as a result of international support that Canadian firefighters have received to try to keep these fires at bay. And indeed the help from uh, people from firefighters like Wade McAllister that we heard in the audio there acting as a, as a first responder, as it were, getting there early and helping putting out the flames before they took hold. Right, and there are cer- certain municipalities who are, I wouldn't say accustomed to, but certainly more subject to forest fires, have taken areas, uh, have taken steps to create areas around their municipalities. And this is certainly where farmers would come in in dealing with the uh, efforts to create a, um, a no-forest zone right around the municipalities to try to keep a belt there that would not have uh, combustible material in it. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. And finally, earlier on in this special episode of the Farmers Weekly Podcast, we heard from the Hamill family, malting barley growers who've started their own malt house. Well, some of that malt is turned into beer right here at Olds College. And who better to show us how it's done than head brewer Jason Popescu. My name is Jason Popescu. I'm known as JP around here, but I'm the brewmaster with Olds College Brewery. It's a relatively small five-barrel brew house with six 10-barrel tanks, two 10-barrel bright tanks, and we produce roughly about 500 hectoliters a year, so 50,000 liters a year. Now, some people are going to say this is a genius idea. Students are known, agricultural students are known for their love of beer, but there is actually a more serious side to this as, as well. It's not just about supplying beer to the college bar. Exactly. No, we're trying to teach the students the fundamentals of beer making, the science behind it. Um, the art is more of an aspect of like, your personal preference uh, with recipe development and, and artistic design for labels and marketing. Um, but the science, the core, uh, you know, how yeast behaves, how yeast propagates, how yeast ferments um, to make good quality beer. Tell me a little bit about the process. The college does grow barley. Uh, oftentimes it doesn't necessarily reach malting quality, but every once in a while uh, it does reach malting quality. We don't malt on site, but that is something that has been discussed for, for quite a while. Uh, but we have local malt houses, art- artisanal maltsters, for example, Redshed, which is about half an hour up the road. Um, and we get quite a bit of malt from them. There's also Alex, um, the town of Alex, Alberta, has RAR malting, which is part of the Shakopee RAR in Minnesota, and they are the largest malt producer in the world. And so we get malt from them, as well as Canada malting, which has, or which is part of Country Malt Group now, but uh, they have a facility out of Calgary, so we get, we, we get all our stuff local, and most of the barley that's malted by them is grown locally. We're right at the edge of the barley belt here in, in Western Canada, um, and we produce a large proportion of Canadian malts is brewed just in the region we're standing in. So we just heard the fermentation hub in the background. This is a commercial operation as well as something that is here so that students can study the arts and the craft of, uh, of brewmaking. Yeah, for sure. We run, this, <clears throat> excuse me, we run this facility year-round. When the students are in session between September and April, they are in here uh, one day a week, but they help produce our core beers as well as produce their own start-to-finish beer-to-market is what we call it, a commercial beer to put on the shelf and sell to local retailers and, and pubs. 
including uh, Aggie Ale, which I was uh, fortunate enough to sample some of that last night. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah, Aggie Ale is our core amber ale. It has the, the caramel malt characteristics and a fair amount of hops in it. I describe it to people who are familiar with Rickards Red, which is a big Canadian brand produced by Molson, but uh, I describe it as Rickards Red on steroids because it has a little more alcohol, a little more uh, hop, a little more character flavor, punch, a little more oomph. So that's the beer that you're producing. You're also producing students who go on to make careers in the brewing industry themselves. Yes. Uh, a lot of our students that graduate end up in the industry somewhere. Some choose to go into sales and they become sales rep for other breweries. Some go into the marketing aspect and are more artistic. Uh, so they you know, do the graphics design for breweries. Some start up their own brewery. We had one student who is from the area, but he was teaching English as a second language in Korea. He came back, he got his diploma here, uh, went back to Korea, opened his own brewery. And then we have students that come up from from the U.S. We've had a couple of those. Uh, one who came from the U.S., he was underage in the U.S., of course, because he was under 21, which is a drinking age in the U.S., so he came here because he was 18. He could do his program. He graduated from here, and uh, now he's the head brewer at a successful brewery in southern Alberta. Jason Popescu, thank you very much. You're welcome. So, Owen, what a fantastic idea. An agricultural college that brews its own beer. Yeah, I'm sure the students think it's a great idea. <laughs> and so do professors who are uh, committed to experiential learning. You know, experiencing what a microbrewery does, how it runs, where it gets supplies from. Because with microbreweries popping up all over the place, this is a good opportunity for students to learn how to have skills that can be transferable almost immediately when they graduate. And some of those students have gone into the brewing industry, as, as we've heard, some even setting up their own microbreweries. I, I guess for students looking to come into agriculture, it's a, well, it's a unique selling point almost, isn't it, for, for Olds College here? I don't think we in the UK have an agricultural college with its own microbrewery yet, but it's, uh, it's probably something that, having listened to this podcast, that some of them might be thinking about. Certainly the students probably will be. Well, you could understand students and beer have a certain relationship <laughs> that is traditional, but it, all, it underlines to me the diversity that agriculture has and it offers to students. You know, you, you don't absolutely have to go into production agriculture to be involved in agriculture. Absolutely, production agriculture is key, but then where does it go from there? And this is an example, it's a great example, of how uh, students can be involved, maybe in non-traditional ways, in agriculture. And agriculture, as we know, underpins that food and drink industry, whether it's in Canada or in the UK. In terms of farming itself, are enough people coming into this industry? Well, I think we can always use more. We can always use more people, and I think this is where... Uh, Canada's immigration policy is very important for the development of agriculture and agri-food in Canada. And I think it's important to think of it, and this is the federal government does this because the, the, the department committed to agricultural development is called agriculture and food. So that recognition that 
we start with our primary product and then off we go. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Now, traditionally in Canada, that's been uh, an export, uh, export initiative, but more and more like this example that we're talking about with the brewery here, it can be turned into food because we know beer is food. Well, I'll drink to that, Owen. And uh, that's about it from this episode of the Farmers Weekly podcast from Canada, from Olds College of Agriculture and Technology and the Prairie Province of Alberta. Do get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you, whether you're in Canada or in the UK. You can email us at podcast at fwi.co.uk. We'll have another episode of the Farmers Weekly podcast next week. But for now, from Alberta in Canada, I'm Johan Tasker. Goodbye. And I'm Owen Roberts. Goodbye. Goodbye.